This is CC Confidential, a selection of bonus clips from our podcast recording. Welcome to our segment with Dryden Brown, CEO of Blue Book Cities. Fun fact, Dryden was a pro surfer as a teen. He tells us which book inspired him to start thinking about changing the world. We also talk about the importance of getting incentive structures right, charter cities as a soft power weapon, and the article he wrote after meeting a talented young kid on a flight to Ghana. I spent a lot of time traveling for surfing, you know, going to surf contests and so forth when I was in high school. I read a lot of, you know, sort of libertarian literature as one does. You know, my dad was into these these ideas too. So we talk about, I actually read uh, George Gilder's Knowledge and Power, and he talks about charter cities. He talks about about Paul Romer and how he introduced this idea. And there's this sort of iconic image of these young students doing their home in, in Africa, doing their homework under a street light. They have this very modern technology, but they don't have this this quite old technology of you know, ha- having electricity in their home. And the idea is that you know you can set up these special legal zones where you don't have regulatory capture that ends up increasing the price of electricity or something for these students, such that they can't afford. I thought that was kind of interesting. I was like, oh, setting up new cities sounds fairly interesting. And you were thinking this while you were going to surfing competitions. You were reading libertarian books and. These are just sort of like naive, like 15-year-old thoughts where, you know, sort of you think you see these obvious optimizations in the world. You think, oh, I'm so bright and, and thank God I, I found this, this book that, that no one else has read. And, you know, we could sort of change the world in this really positive way quite easily. Uh, that, that's never really the case. It can be quite useful to write literature that conveys problems as being like much sort of simpler to solve than they actually are. You have to engage in this sort of naivete to even get started working on these problems, right? And then then you get to the more serious literature that helps you understand, all right, like what are the sort of nuanced problems and so forth. The insight with Blue Book Cities is we want to build a political model with better incentive structures, and it's it's hard to reform existing models. So we want to sort of go out onto the margins and find a a politically viable way to build a, a private city. A city that that's oriented towards producing sort of satisfaction in its customers, as opposed to these myriad political concerns that sort of the metropole in the West, you know, t- tends to be concerned with. Dryden, I have a question: yeah, When yeah. you build a charter city in a new country, in Africa or whatever, yeah. isn't power really with the local government? Like they could pull the rug out from under you at any time. I think there are these interesting political structures that you can employ. The, the more that cities are oriented towards free cash flow, the more they're going to be oriented towards like serving customers' needs. And if your sort of customer base is this, you know, highly verticalized intellectual circle, you're probably going to be able to stay true to that. The, the sort of local government, the private government that's implemented by the company and then sort of later integrated into the institutional fabric of the host country. If you can structure the incentives right, then I think it can persist in a way that maintains the values of the city. But there are these much more challenging questions of like, how do you actually make this happen in the first place? Like, how do you solve the political problem? Um, and I think one way to think about this I think I think charter cities can be viewed as a soft power weapons technology. What I mean by that is, you know, the State Department has these various organizations like sort of you know, what, you, what used to be OPIC and you know, now, now the U.S. IDFC, a DFC, you know, sort of invest money in these in these various infrastructure projects in a way that's that's somewhat competitive with China, right? Like China is trying to set up this system where um, they have all these tributary states 
um, that like, you know, ship them uh, metals and, and whatever. And, and these Chinese governments don't have access to infrastructure finance that's at as competitive rates as, as they're being offered by the Chinese. They end up selling like half of their country and all their bauxite to, you know, some, some Chinese, you know, government uh, or sort of like de facto government and corporation. The State Department wants to have competitive offerings for infrastructure finance. They can't do it off their own balance sheet. So one way to view charter cities is, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to go out and set up new culture that helps you know the country view America more favorably, that, that sort of is able to attract the human capital required to develop like a local financial center and eventually give that country access to global liquidity, right? With global liquidity, I mean, you, you can like finance these infrastructure projects at rates that are more competitive with China, you know, and, and there just isn't enough money sort of on the State Department's balance sheet to like finance these projects. But there is, and, and just Western capital markets that, that now can't really go into these sort of, they're hesitant to like, you know, do deals, do big deals. Dryden, so I think Justin's point was, so I think we can agree that, that like, obviously there's a cold war going on, right? So you're talking about uh, soft power weapons technology and that all makes sense. But I think Justin's point was also referring to the fact, I think we've spoken about it a bit of like, People say that, for example, the dollar's value is backed because of the military, right? Mm -hmm. So like, it's because of that, that there's actually value to it. We have all this naval power, right? We can go and force the dollar's value anywhere in the world if we want to. But the problem, I think, Jess, maybe you can correct me here, is that like, so say you build a city in Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, and it's all going fine and dandy. One day they come in with guns. How do you plan in the event and the insurance of a hot war? So like, is that private military? Is that Blackwater? How are you thinking about it? yeah, I mean, cer- certainly we don't want to have, um, I mean, our, our, our plan is not not to bring a bunch of Blackwater people over and not to, um, Let's hope. Not, not to like militarize our, I mean, we cer- certainly we'll have police and private security to make sure that our residents are, are safe. But I, I guess what I was trying to express earlier is that charter cities are a political tool for global hegemonic powers, right? So for the U.S., a charter city is a tool to develop a stronger relationship with Ghana or Nigeria or whatever. Um, and then sort of for Ghana, um, you know, establishing these links with the United States is beneficial for a number of reasons. Again, one of which is like better access to, to capital markets. I mean, what, what you want to do is just get the incentive design problem right at the outset so that the project is super beneficial to the Ghanaian government, it's super beneficial to Ghanaians, and it's super beneficial to the United States government, right? Sort of if you can if you can structure all that correctly at the outset, then sort of you shouldn't you shouldn't have any like real conflicts. Like if, if you get to a point where you, where like the police are being sent, it's it's already too late. Um, I'm just curious about the perception from like yeah. the local point of view. Right. It could be like neo colonialist, right? Like uh, yeah, little, certainly, you know, white Americans going in. It sounds, you know, almost like a repeat of uh, the 1870s. Right. So, so this is one of the common criticisms. Usually, usually, it's just sort of a weapon of the opposition party. It's like there's some political points that that um, you know some some group can score by sort of framing this thing in a really negative light, even if it's you know super beneficial to to the local population. I think this is this is certainly a a big issue for these countries that I think probably less of these projects will end up being done there because you're just constraining the sort of like founder market when you're just sort of not like wanting Americans to go over and do these projects there. Then it's like, okay, like we've, we've built our, our whole like distribution in America, like silk, like in, in the Valley, people know about charter cities they sort of know about these ideas in Ghana. Not that many people have heard about these ideas yet. Right. So there just aren't that many like Ghanaian founders that are trying to do this sort of thing. 
Ani had mentioned that you wrote the article about finding the lost Elons, and I ended up reading it. The article was about sort of meeting this kid on a flight uh, to Ghana um, who was working on building a bus factory um, in Ghana and basically uh, describing the sort of regulatory constraints that made him hard, made it challenging for him to to get financing to pursue this project um, that he wouldn't have faced in the U.S. So, for example, in Ghana, there's there's a minimum foreign investment law. So I think the minimum investment's like 300 grand or 500 grand or something like that. It, it's quite hard for you know a young Ghanaian entrepreneur to raise a small pre-seed round, a small seed round, you know, especially when they have no background. Right? It's like e- even if they could connect with some VC on Twitter and that VC wanted to write them a 100, 100K check, like the laws of Ghana would prohibit the Ghanaian, you know, taking a check from a non-Ghanaian. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was I, I was trying to sort of demonstrate this point that, you know, often there are laws that, that inhibit like you know, startup communities in these places. And if you sort of like, you know, just you know, flip a very, a very simple switch there, you can discover more of these people, you get more $50,000 checks written, $20,000 checks written, and so forth. So Patry back Blue Book, he's doing awesome stuff. Patry is very focused on finding super high quality founders to just go try things in the space, develop the space. It's not a space yet. There, there aren't sort of sound ideas as to how new cities should be built, particularly. I think his strategy of just like, hey, you know, we're a seed fund, pre-seed fund. Let's just find super, super talented founders and let them figure out sort of how to solve these problems. I think I think that's sort of the correct approach insofar as sort of accelerating the progress of, of new cities being built. It's kind of just the Wild West. You guys are just let loose into the world to find like the next plot of land for a charter city. There are a bunch of people that are sort of pursuing this Mark Letter, he runs the Charter Cities Institute. So he, he's working with a few people who are working on, on these sorts of projects. They may work. Mark's a smart guy. We'll see if that strategy works. Geography is super important. This doesn't just work anywhere. It works in very specific circumstances. So I think, you know, in Dubai, they built, they built this massive port. In your Lost Elon article, you had the picture side by side of the 11 years of development in Dubai. Pretty crazy. In Singapore, they obviously had favorable geography and so forth. So in some circumstances... This model can work building specialized infrastructure and attracting tenants that want to you know, sell into the market and whatever, right? I mean, I guess my point about sort of Dubai and, and Shenzhen and Hong Kong and these cities that people on Twitter who like to talk about charter cities and whatever tend to sort of like put up as examples. I guess I would just want to put some context around the claim that you can just sort of implement good governance and then and then you'll just have a Singapore or a Hong Kong or a Shenzhen. Like that's not the case. Like it's it's a lot more complex than that. In the case of Singapore, it's just sort of massively privileged geographically. In the case of Shenzhen, right, it's like you have China. There's no there's no real estate market. There's no sort of like China wasn't really like interfacing with the West at that time. And they sort of opened up in 1980. They opened up Shenzhen, which was this little fishing village to the West, sort of experimented with this zone. And, you know, they had a real estate market and so forth. So a ton of money flooded into to Shenzhen to get exposure to China, exposure to the market and whatever. And it grew an insane amount. Talking to Alain Berteau, urban planner at, at NYU, he was at the World Bank and he had the Chinese come and ask, you know, hey, they, they had this plan and they needed like a billion dollars to build out all this infrastructure for 10x population growth or something like that. He was like, you know, that's crazy. There's no way that, that the population is going to grow this much. Like we can't sign off on this plan. We can't finance this project. It ended up growing, I think, significantly more than they even projected. China is a great example of this because they had the push toward the cities, right? So they pushed all the peasants into Shanghai, Beijing as one mode to increase GDP per capita, but also, you know, just to get that cultural flourishing. Mm-hmm. 